turning your Bibles or scrolling your Bible app to the book of Ecclesiastes once again. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, last week we got up through verse 6, we are picking up at verse 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, uh, beginning in verse 7. If you are physically able, would you stand please in honor of the reading of God's holy and perfect word, and follow along silently as I read aloud from Ecclesiastes chapter 11, beginning in verse 7. This is what the word of God says. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment." Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. A few years after my parents were divorced, uh, both me and my younger sister were old enough to go to school and were going there full time. Probably I was in, I don't know, maybe fifth grade. My sister would probably be in second grade or maybe first and fourth, something like that. Mom went back to work. Now, first she worked as a secretary at a local Catholic school uh, while she also worked uh, part time as a cashier at a Toys R Us on some nights and usually all day on Saturday. Eventually, she secured a job at a place called North Shore Animal League America, which is the largest no-kill animal rescue and adoption organization in the world, adopting about 20,000 pets nationwide every year and placing puppies and kittens and cats and dogs into screened homes. Mom securing this job was a blessing for a couple of reasons. Number one, it was no longer necessary for her to work two jobs. She worked, and she ended up working there for just under 30 years. She retired in January. And although mom's job was an administrative job, she wasn't directly working with the animals. It didn't stop us from adopting Frisky, Marmalade, Coco, Cookie, four cats, and Maggie, the dog. May they rest in peace. And her two current cats, Sherlock and Watson. They're so fat. They're huge. She's like, no, they're they're strong. It's like, they are, to carry around that much cat, there's some muscles in there that are strong, right? But it's a lot of cat. It's a lot of cat. She held many roles there, but one of the first ones she held was estate gift planning. Mom would call people who had been generous to the shelter in the past, who seemed to be in the home stretch in the sunset years of their lives to see if they would consider bequeathing a gift to North Shore Animal League. I remember hearing her tell others what she did for work. She said, my job is to work with wealthy donors with one foot in the ground to see if they'll include North Shore Animal League in their Will. It was an interesting way of describing her job. And it's so funny, the things that stand out. Do you ever find, like, why do I remember what I remember? And why can't I remember what I forget? Like, these things, that's, how, that's the first time I ever heard the term, one foot in the ground. 
Why do I remember that? It didn't change my life at all. I just remember hearing her say that, and that's when I heard that term. The title of the sermon is How to Walk with One Foot in the Ground. The term one foot in the ground refers refers to people who seem to be or are, in fact, nearing the end of their lives. But Ecclesiastes seems to want everyone to see themselves as having one foot in the ground, right? Like all summer, Ecclesiastes has been telling us to know uh, sooner rather than later the brevity of our life, that, that the, the brevity of our time on earth should be on our minds uh, sooner rather than later. Now, ours is a society and culture that deals with aging in different ways. There is certainly no shortage of beauty products, creams, lotions, pills, supplements, so many oils, and the like that are marketed to people who wish to battle against the effects of time and gravity on their body. Uh, This week, I read about, quote, the Cenogenics Medical Institute in Las Vegas, Nevada, which describes itself as the world's largest age management practice. Now, their goal is to help you to spend as much time as possible in your body. They will feed you, they will exercise you, they will monitor you, they will drug you, and adapt you with the goal of helping you to live in your body as long as possible. It costs a lot of money, and people are more than willing to pay it. Theirs is a worldview. Remember last, last week we spoke about perspective, where you start from. Theirs is a worldview that the best thing that you have is your body. And so why not try your best to limit it as long as you can? Are they aware of death? Yes. Is this what Ecclesiastes is calling us to do? No. Ecclesiastes doesn't want us to ignore death or even run from death. Ecclesiastes has been telling us how to live our lives, not obsessed with our death, not fearing our death, not going to Vegas to delay our death, but to live our lives shaped by our death, shaped by our death. Today, I hope you'll see in the text before us that it is unapologetically realistic about the pains associated with aging and dying. But that reality isn't supposed to lead us to despair, but to living more fully while we can. It's a a seesaw of rejoice and remember. Uh, Remember and rejoice. Look at verse 8 and you'll see that. Uh, Verse 8 says, so if a person lives many years, let him what? Rejoice in them all. In other words, love the life God has given you. Let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. So rejoice in the many years that the Lord gives you. Rejoice in the life that God has given you. But remember that the light of life described in the previous verse will one day grow dim for all of us. Remember and rejoice. Remember and rejoice. And the thing we've seen throughout our time in Ecclesiastes, contrary to what we might think, the urgency isn't on the death side of equation. We're to calmly remember death, understand that death is coming, keep it on our mind, and then urgently seek to enjoy the life that God has given us now while we still have time. So let's look at how to walk with one foot in the ground. Pick it up in verse 7, Ecclesiastes 11 and verse 7. Light is sweet, and it is, it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, the goodness of life is frequently referred to as light. Uh, to see the sun doesn't simply mean you're alive and you're aware of it, you see it, but you see it joyfully. It's how you feel when you step outside, perhaps, for the first time on a, just a beautiful day, and you're like, wow, this is beautiful. You know, you've been, you, you get up at whatever time you get up, you get dressed, You're about to leave for wherever, to run an errand, to go to work, to go to school. And you're kind of taken aback, like, wow, it's just, it's just beautiful. The temperature is just lovely. The sky is clear. The humidity is low. The sun is shining and it just seems perfect. Uh, It is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. That's the the picture that Solomon is calling to our minds in verse 7. Skip down to verse 9. It says, rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Now, the term youth is relative, right? People in their 20s, I'm learning, look at me in my 40s and don't see me as young. Uh, People in their 60s and 70s look at me in my 40s and don't see me as old. 
Uh, my son Justin is 20. My other son Silas is 10. Silas sees Justin as old, and I still have Justin in my phone as, quote, small man. That's the nickname we gave him when he was a baby. Uh, verse 9 is essentially telling us to enjoy life while we can. Before we enter the stage of life, Later depicted for us in chapter 12 and verse 3, the days nearing our death when we in all likelihood won't be able to enjoy it as we can right now. It's not, you're young, but don't forget, one day you'll be old. That's, that's not what's being said there. What's being said there is always make the most of the life that God has given you while you can with every fiber of your being while you can. That's what it means when it says in verse 9, walk in the ways of your heart, and the sight of your eyes. That's not, the, that's not contrary to what we see elsewhere in Scripture. That's not you know, saying follow your heart. But walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. Meaning what your heart can do. What your eyes can do. What your body can do. Go all out. Enjoy it. It's God's gift to you. This life that he has given you. And so before we move on. I just want to ask a question for you to consider. What about you? Is your future... Shaping your present or is your future stalling your present? Is your future shaping your present? Or when you think about the future, that which you don't know stresses you out and causes you to get analysis paralysis, slam on the brakes, and stall. If you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good, I would say your future is stalling your present. This world is going to hell in a handbasket. It's all full of sin and I just can't wait to get to heaven. That's fine. I'm just going to sit around and can't wait to get to heaven. I'm glad you're excited about heaven, but God also wants you to be excited about the life that he's given you. He wants you to enjoy it. He wants you to serve. He wants you to reach others. And he wants you to quite frankly, just have a blast with the life that he's given you on this earth as well. But if the brevity of life causes you to want to live life more fully, to do what you can while you can, to approach today with urgency because it's all you've got, then your future is shaping your present. Which one is true of you? Does your future shape your present or does it stall your present? Now, here's something I don't want you to miss. Point number one, you need to know that God actually, get ready for this, commands joy happiness, and delight. He actually commands joy, happiness, and delight. If you look again at verse 9 in your copy of the scriptures, we read this. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. Friends, just a, what we call a prima facie reading of the text. As you read that text, that verse, in every way, shape, and form, is an imperative statement. Rejoice, let your heart cheer you, walk. These are imperative statements. They're a call to action. I think because we're talking about enjoying life and living life to the fullest, we read the imperative statement, but we're like, that's kind of a suggestion. But if it was something else, we would see the imperative statement for what it is. But since we're talking about enjoying life, we kind of see it as, oh, this is probably like an opportunity for us to level up, right? For us to uh, upgrade our life. So God's like encouraging us to do that. I don't see that in the text. It's a dangerous thing to misinterpret imperative statements in the Bible as suggestions. They, they are not. They're commands. They're calls to action. Don't think just because we're talking about enjoying life that makes these statements any less of a command than any other command or imperative statement that you see in the scriptures. These aren't optional extras for the believer who happens to be living in the prime of her life or he happens to be young and has the, just the, the, the world at his fingertips. Enjoyment is literally a command. You need to know that God actually commands joy happiness, and delight. Then in verse 9, at the end of that, it says, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. And then I want, like, when I'm reading that at first, I'm like, what is that? Like, enjoy life, but not too much. Is that what God's saying? It's, you, anybody Curious George? Did you grow up with Curious George? Do you ever notice that man with the yellow hat who has no name, 
the man with the yellow hat before. He would always tell Curious George to like go out and have fun. And then he would finish by, but do you anybody remember? Don't get into trouble. I'm like, why do you say that to the monkey? Like, that's probably why he gets into trouble. Like, I don't tell my kids that all the, like, hey, kids, good night, go to bed, but don't get into trouble. Hey, kids, we're going to go to the pool, but don't get into trouble. And then the next thing you know, the monkey's eating a puzzle piece, and he's in the hospital, and it's a, it's a whole thing. Is this God being like, now enjoy, but don't get into trouble. Go out, have fun, but don't get into trouble. Don't forget your curfew. Don't party too hard. Ask if it's going to, like, is that what God's saying? I don't, I don't think so. Instead, I think it serves to further prove the point that this is a real, legitimate command necessitating our obedience. In other words, can we say this? Our enjoyment of this world God has given us or lack of enjoyment of this world is one of the things that God will call to account when we stand before him in judgment. This is serious stuff. It's a command. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you in to judgment. It's a command. Keep your place in Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and flip back to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 28. I don't think this is the only time we see this in the scriptures. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Uh, That chapter in particular is 68 verses. Uh, The first 14 verses are talking about the blessings that happen to the people of God if they obey him. Uh, That's the first 14 verses. The latter 54 verses are talking about what happens to the people of God if they disobey him. How serious God takes obedience to his commands, to his words. Look what he says. Look at, uh, we'll just look at chapter 28 uh, in verse 1, just quickly. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field, and blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flocks. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. It'll all be blessed. It's always good. God's saying clearly, unapologetically, like without, beyond the shadow of a doubt, you obey me, it will pay off. You obey me, it will completely be worth it. It's always better to obey me. Now, skip down to verse 15. He says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the, gr- the fruit of the ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Curse, 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 curse. Look at verse 20. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake and do. Look at verse 25. The Lord will cause you to be defeated. Before your enemies, Uh, you shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air. I mean, this is graphic stuff. God is sparing no ink. He's not holding back at all to get their attention to say, obeying me, good. Disobeying me, never, ever good. But now skip down to verse, uh, take take a look at verse 45. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever. Look at verse 47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with what? With joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. I think when we read that quickly, we say, God is talking about judging the people because they did not serve him. 
But look at the text carefully. Look at verse 47. It doesn't say because you did not serve the Lord. It says because you did not serve the Lord with what? Joyfulness. With gladness. And it says specifically because of the what? Abundance of all things. Meaning there's always a reason to be glad. Even in times of trial and adversity, there's still a reason to serve the Lord and be glad. But the text says they were judged because they failed to serve him with joyfulness and gladness of heart. Because of the abundance of all things. Failure to enjoy God's world uh, is not just an oversight. It's an offense. One author put it this way. Quote, the joy the people of God were always meant to enjoy in the land is an earthy joy. A sheer delight in the gifts of food and drink and relationships and rest. The more joyful we are, the more like God we are. Gosh, there are tons of books out there. Tons of sermons out there on how to find joy in the midst of trials. Joy in the midst of sorrow. Functional joy in a dysfunctional life. Joy in the midst of disappointing relationships. But the most important book ever written, the Bible, tells us that to not live joyfully, to not enjoy the life and the things God has given us, is sin. In fact, it's similar to the very first sin of Adam, if you think about it. Adam and Eve, they believed God was withholding something from them. God said, you can, any, any tree of the garden, it's all yours. Go crazy. Just one tree that I don't want you to eat from. And instead of trusting in the Lord that his command would be, that obeying his command would be sufficient for them, they bet, I, I bet that one tree is better than the other tree. I know we could have all the trees, all the fruit in the entire garden of Eden. There's probably something special about that one tree. And when they took it upon themselves to get it, they essentially charged God with not being good to them and all he had blessed them with. God actually commands joy and happiness and delight. And so in your outline, I put three ways to start to grow in joy, happiness, and delight. These are three good places to start, three good places to maybe decide, I think I'm going to start here. This one might be a good place for me to start. Uh, The first one, letter A, start small by pursuing gratitude for The little things. Start small by pursuing gratitude for the little things. Uh, How many of you know the board game Chinese Checkers? Little marbles, right? You play. So I remember. I don't remember how old I was, um, but we were (laughs) we were at uh, a friend's house, and this lady was kind enough. It's around Christmas time. She was kind enough to get a gift for me and my sister. And when I opened it, it was a board game, and it was Chinese. Checkers, and she was excited to give it to us, and I was little, but here's the thing, we already had it. We already had it. So I, ever the honest child, opened up the gift, there's a smile by the lady who's giving it to us, and she goes, do you like it? And I just look at her, I'm like, we, ha- we already have it. Like as a kid, I'm like, we already, I'm just going to level with you, this is not new. Right, we already have this, you want it back, like what do you want to, what do you want to do? And so my mom took me aside, not didn't take me aside, as we were walking to the car, and she was like, don't do that. I was like, don't do what? And she was like, don't be ungrateful. It's not that you have to lie and say we don't have it, but it's the thought that somebody gave this to you that you should be very, very grateful for. They thought of you. They spent money on you guys. Always be grateful. Always be Grateful, even for the little things. Always be grateful. First Thessalonians 5 and verse 18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, even when you receive a second box of Chinese checkers that you don't need. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And so it's not that mom is telling me I should be thankful for a second box of Chinese checkers. 
Nor is the Bible telling me I need to be thankful for that second box. Because the Bible doesn't say to give thanks for all circumstances. The Bible says give thanks what? In all circumstances. There's a, always a reason to be thankful. Start small by pursuing gratitude for uh, the little things. Uh, our garbage day is Monday. And so on Sunday night, I roll the cans to the curb and I get the garbage all set. I don't know if anybody else is like this, but like, this is like my thing. Like there is, I'm not saying that there's just one way to do it. I'm just saying everybody else in my family does it wrong. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. It's kind of my job. I'm going to make sure that it's good. I'm going to make sure that this, I look, there's a certain way I want the garbage cans set up. I don't want them to fall. I don't want them just to be like willy-nilly all over the place. I roll it to the curb. I put the handle to the curb. So the garbage man who has to pick up, I don't know how many garbage cans can just easily roll it. They rarely return the favor. It lands wherever they want to put the garbage can, but whatever. I'm a Christian. I'm going to do it anyway. But I developed, I developed this rhythm every Sunday night when I'm rolling the garbage cans to the curb and I turn back around and I look back at my house and I can't believe it's mine. I, I look at the, the windows in my house and some of the lights are on and some of the lights are off. This one light is on. It's the bathroom light. It's always on. We'll talk about that later. But I'm, I look and I know my son's sleeping there. I know where my daughter's been. And I just look back and I just feel incredibly blessed. But that's because I asked the Lord to grow me in thankfulness. I, I wanted to put certain things in my life and now it's, it's like a, a weekly, it's a rhythm. I roll the garbage cans to the curb the right way. I turn around. I look back at my house and I always just kind of pause and I always stare at it. And I'm just, I'm just blown away at God's goodness to me. I think about my four kids. I'm just blown away at God's goodness to me. I think about my wife. We've been married for almost 21 years. I'm just so blessed. It's not that my house is a mansion. Uh, our newest car is 13 years young. I'm just so blessed by the little things. What about you? God commands joy, happiness, and delight. Are you thankful for are you thankful for the little things? The little things in life, the normal things. I have a friend who I would say is a foodie. I greatly admire this person's like refined palate. They they taste things that I don't I can't taste without looking for them. It's kind of it's kind of cool. And I'm I'm grateful for that. And it's kind of fun to eat with that person to a point. Because on the other side, I feel like they're never happy. Or I'm just I'm just I'm a pretty utilitarian eater. Like I'm happy. Why are you happy? Because I am now full. How did it taste? And it also tasted good. But I'm not a fussy eater. I know what I like. I know what's good. I know what's great. But usually if you ask me, like, how was that? I'm probably going to look at you and be like, it was pretty good. Like, it would have to be bad for it to... It's not like... It's a little... I don't know if I taste the... the, the I don't even know these words. Like, they'll name a specific spice. And I'm like, wow, that's oddly specific that you know that's missing. That is so cool. Are you ever happy? Do you ever just eat something and just be like, wow, that's... Because I think if you're not happy in the little things, you'll probably never be happy in the big things. Say, no, 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 no. It's just that they know the finer things. Probably not. And then, so often, how often do you really get the finer things? Is a steak at the precinct better than any steak you could cook? Yes. You get to do that a few times a year? No. If you can't find joy in the little things in life, if you're not grateful for the little things, you're probably not far from not being grateful at all. And the less gratitude you have, the closer you are to losing your delight in almost everything. Uh, three ways to start to grow in joy, happiness, and delight. Letter B, come to the realization that grumpiness is a sin and repent. 
Come to the realization that grumpiness is a sin and repent. I feel like this is applicable to anyone, but probably particularly prevalent among guys. I'm, I'm not sure why. We kind of laugh it off. I feel like sometimes we look for a reason to be grumpy. Do you remember the guy in Christmas Vacation, Chevy Chase's father-in-law, like he finally gets the lights working? And do you remember what he says? The little lights aren't twinkling. And Chevy Chase is like, I know, Dad. Thanks for noticing. It's like, he's like looking for the one thing that's out that's not really where, ha-ha. Finally, the whole, li- the, whole, the whole house is brightly lit from Christmas lights. They've had to switch over to the nuclear power, the auxiliary power. Like, it's great. The whole town comes back on grid. And he's like, the little lights aren't twinkling. Thanks. Merry Christmas to you. Sometimes we're in a bad mood and we're tired and we come home grumpy and we look for things. We like look for the little lights that aren't twinkling. If I'm in a good mood and I come home and the bikes are left in the garage uh, where my car belongs or in the driveway, not anywhere in the driveway, but right in front of my door. If I'm in a good mood, literally, I park the car, I get out, I move the bikes and it's almost similar to my little garbage night moment where I'm like, It's so cool that the kids, like, they had fun today. They drove around the driveway. They probably had fun. They enjoyed the sun. If I'm in a bad mood, I'm like, man, I wonder wonder why they hate me so much. (laughs) Like, of all the places they could leave the bikes, why, how hard is it for you to put, just put your bikes away? In fact, your feet away from where they belong. Like, and you had to walk through the garage to get in the house. Just put the bikes away. This is not, this is not hard. If I'm in a good mood, if I'm in a good spot in life, if I've been grateful, when I walk through the house to turn off the lights that my kids and family leave, I don't want to, Sarah's not exempt, right? That, they, that everybody leaves on. I literally walk into Emma's bedroom and her lamp is on. It's only on if it, the day ends in a Y. I walk in and I, I, I turn the light off and I think about her in school or I think about her and I just, I'm grateful. I pray for her. I walk in and I turn, my boys sleep at the sound machine. They, they, they never turn it off in the morning. So I get up and I walk in there. I've told them to. They, always, they don't. I walk in there. I turn off the sound machine. And I think about the fact that I'm blessed with my sons. If I'm in a grumpy mood, I walk into Emma's room. And I turn off the lamp. And I think, why am I the only one who cares? Why does nobody care? How hard is what I'm asking people to do? It just took me seconds to turn off this lamp. What, is she booked so solid she can't turn off the lamp as she comes downstairs? How hard is this? Why is the fan on in an empty room? What, let me tell you something. Fans don't cool rooms. Fans don't lower the temperature of rooms. They just move the air around. So there's no, I'm going to put the fan on because I want it to be cool when I come back. Not true. Not going to work. Put it on when you're in the room. Doesn't... It doesn't cool the room. It just moves the air around so you feel a breeze. But if you put a thermometer in the room and you turn the fan on, it's not going to go down when you turn the fan on. Not that I've thought about this at all. Like, I just... Not that my family has ever heard me say this. But if I'm grumpy, I then use those as reasons to be grumpy. And it's never big things. It's always little things. It's bikes. It's lights. It's a fan. These are not life and death things. Grumpiness is a sin. Stop laughing at it. If you're older and you think you've earned your right to be grumpy, let me help you. You have not. In fact, you should be setting the example for those of us who are younger than you. Get over yourself. Philippians 2 verse 14 says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You can't obey that verse 
for those verses and be grumpy. What about you? What is it like to live with you? Some people seem to refuse to be happy until their one foot in the ground is joined by their other foot. Is that you? I think grumpiness is a sin. I think you should repent. Three ways to start to grow in joy, happiness, and delight. The third one, letter C. Realize how much joy you've lost due to anxiety and put it to death. Realize how much joy you've lost to anxiety and put it to death. Could you imagine if you could know the number of hours of life you've lost to anxiety? Could you imagine if somehow that was quantifiable, that you actually could, like, like there would be an app that you could look up, like, wow, I've been this anxious this day. Could you imagine if you could add up the number of hours of life wasted in anxiety? Could you imagine if you knew how much sleep you've missed out on because of fear and worry? Could you imagine if you could quantify the number of times you've been disengaged from a conversation you're having right now with someone you love, with a friend, with a family member, and you're giving them the thousand-yard stare... Because even though they're right in front of you, speaking to you, looking you in the eye, your mind is in another galaxy. I so hate when I do that. But I do that. And in an effort to stop doing that, I haven't just, like I used to, like my daughter's telling me something. But I'm, I'm anxious about something and I'm just kind of giving her this stare and she's saying something and then she looks because it's time for me to answer and I haven't been listening. And I used to, well, I'll be honest with you, I used to do. I used to throw out an answer. I used to say that's like, there's certain answers that are generally applicable to all situations I've learned. Wow. That's rarely wrong. Right? Like that'll, that'll follow most things. Wow. Good news. Wow. Horrible news. Wow. Something you're really struggling with. Wow. So I used to do that, but that's not cool. I used to say, wait, what? That's a little better because she'll repeat it. I've now started speaking about it in very extra terms. And what I mean by that is when I catch myself doing it, I look at her and I'm like, hey, Emma, everything you just said, I haven't listened to at all because I've allowed my mind to be distracted. I didn't hear anything you said. Can you say that again? I want to say that. That sounds so ugly, right? Like like me saying, hey, guess what? The past three, four minutes that you've been talking, I've not literally, I mean, I know I've been looking at you, but I've not heard a thing. In fact, I've been thinking about four other things. I can't even put you in the ballpark of what you're talking about. So will you forgive me? And can you repeat that? She always looks, she's like, wow, okay. And then she does repeat, yeah, it's very judgy. But that's also good for me. She's like, what's your, pro- wow, what's your problem? And then she repeats it. But you need to catch yourself, in my opinion, with that stuff and confess specifically. Otherwise, you'll never, do- these, are, these are like acceptable sins, right? No one's going to be convicted of being grumpy. I mean, everybody's grumpy. There's probably somebody grumpier than you, so you're not that grumpy. Like, no one's going to be, no one's looking at you and say, why aren't you thankful for the car that you drove to church today? No one's going to look at you and say, why, why, why would you be anxious? Because we know anxiety is a sin, but it's an acceptable sin. Everybody's just like, oh, yeah, I know. We live in a fallen, broken world, and you have kids, and you're anxious about them, and you have health issues, and you're anxious about Like, come on. Come on. Who among us? Right? But do you realize how much joy and delight you have likely lost due to anxiety? How much you have been robbed 
Like, I don't know how to quantify joy. I don't know which unit of measurement to use, but I'll say this. You have no idea how often you've been robbed of joy by anxiety. How often that, that thief hasn't even had to break in. Has walked into the house of your life because you have opened the door for it. Stood there even as it entered and let it take up residence in your mind and heart. In your outline I put an excerpt from Luke chapter 12. And Jesus said to his disciples, beginning in verse 22, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. I love the question he asks in verse 25. Which one of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? When I would argue, not only do you not add, you surely take away. You'll never get that time back. Verse 26. If then you are not able to do as small a thing as as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Think about the things that you have been anxious about and how many of them have come to pass. The things that you have been nervous about and how many of them actually, like, this was, I know anxious is a sin, but look, it happened. It happened. I bet if you were to make a list of the things that have weighed you down in anxiety over the years and then put a check mark next to how many of them have happened, you would check very few. I haven't counted, but I bet 90% of the things that I've been most anxious about in my life are idols in my life. And it's likely the same with you. If idolatry is a plant, anxiety is a phenomenal fertilizer. Uh, Usually we're anxious about something that's out of our control. Even though God is in control, that's that's not good enough. We would feel way better if Jesus didn't take the wheel but gave the wheel to us. Like, could Jesus ride shotgun? And you can, like, you can read Psalms to me as I drive. I love your presence. But I, I would feel safer if I drove. But wouldn't you prefer Jesus to drive? Not, could I? No, I don't want him to drive. I'll drive. Don't you think he's a better driver than you? I'd rather drive. God being in control takes too much trust. Hey, little plug for CDT. Because our advanced track for CDT this year is on anxiety. I can't think of a single person it wouldn't apply to. Counselor, not a counselor. New Christian, older Christian. No one looks at that topic and they're like, I don't know what that's like. I don't know if that applies to me. Like, we did one on parenting teens. You might be way out of that season. You might have no kids. I would love to say it applies to you. In certain people, it just doesn't apply to you. Yes, maybe, you know, you want to be able to help somebody. That's fine. This topic, anxiety, who does that not apply to? Learning how to deal with anxiety Who cannot benefit from that? I would strongly encourage you to register for CDT if you haven't already because this is an area of our life where we need to grow because we need to stop accepting anxiety in our lives, stop accepting nervousness in our lives and learn how to put it to death. What about you? Think about how you normally understand the commands you come across in the Bible. How will you respond to God's command that you enjoy the things he has given us? Uh, Ingratitude, grumpiness, nervousness, they're all the kinds of sins that we tolerate. When we do that, when we smile at them, when we roll our eyes, we're like, I know, it's wrong. Our emotions are in opposition to God's. Opposition to God's. God has never smiled at ingratitude. He's never laughed off your grumpiness. He's never thought about nervousness as no big deal. How will you respond to God's command that you enjoy the things that he has given us? Point number two. You need to act with urgency because your time is running out. So verse 10 in Ecclesiastes chapter 11 says, Remove vexation from your heart. Uh, Literally, remove evil from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. And let's go way back to June when we started in Ecclesiastes. You remember vanity is that Hebrew word that literally means what? A breath. 
youth and the dawn of life, it's going to vanish quickly. It's going to move quickly. Uh, beginning in verse 12, uh, chapter 12, uh, verse 1 says, Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. It's interesting how that's worded, right? It doesn't say remember God, but that is what it means. But remember your creator. So we're being called to remember not just God in general, but the fact that he created all things. Our mind is being called to him and the doctrine of creation. Remembering our creator reminds us that God not only made all things, but made them perfectly. He gave us a good world, not an evil one. We're the ones that are responsible for spoiling it, not him. It it, it helps me to take my place in the world and not demand for myself more than I deserve. A bad day on earth is still a day on earth, and a day on earth is still a day not in hell. But pay special attention to the word before. Do you see that in verse 1? Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come. Verse 2, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened. Uh, Verse 6, before the silver cord is snapped. Before is what gives us that sense of urgency. Before these things happen, they're going to happen. Do it while you can. Do it while you have time. It's this interesting uh, mix of metaphors that we see in chapter 12. Uh, If you look at verse 6, before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken, the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, the wheel at the cistern, what's really being painted before us, I think, is like a well. Just a well. And scene one, scene them all, right? A big hole where there's a lot of water and you can pull up the water. Like it's, it's a well. But it's interesting how Solomon says, the silver cord is broken. It's like, isn't it a rope? I've never... Never known a well to have a bucket at the end of it that, like in the rope, is silver. The silver cord is snapped. Or the golden bowl. I've never heard of a well where, like, you dip down a piece of gold to pull up. It's usually a bucket. But it's because these things that are associated with our life are precious. It's not about the water. It's not about the well. But it's understanding that the life that God has given us is as precious as silver or gold Life is like the water, our bodies are like the lamp and the cord, the rope. And one day, that which holds our life, our bodies, will break. Uh, Verse 6, the cord will snap, the golden bowl is broken, the pitcher is shattered, and life will be over. And this could happen after many years, or it could happen without the help of old age. This could happen within the next 50 years, or 30 years, or 30 days, or 30 minutes. Implied in here is not just obey... It's not just obey soon, but obey now. It will one day be too late to do what we're being called to do here. Verse 7, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is a breath. All is vanity. We don't know when the day comes, but we do know that it's coming. The question is this, what about you? Before that day comes, how will you choose to live? In obedience to God's command, to enjoy this life and everything that he's given you? Or in disobedience and being crotchety and ungrateful and anxious about every little thing, even though God has told us repeatedly over and over again in the scriptures, hey, I'm on it. This is not an evangelistic passage. It's, it's, I mean, it's just not. But I can't help, since we're talking about the brevity of life, and probably just honestly because I preached a funeral on Friday, and I'm preaching a funeral this afternoon, and so it's just on my mind. I want to look at you if you don't know the Lord and say... The brevity of life should be coming to your mind as well because we're talking a lot about death and there will one day be a day when it is too late for you to come to Christ. There will one day be a day where you will not be able to believe on Jesus Christ and be saved. That day is not promised to you tomorrow. And that's not a scare tactic. That's not for me to have you nervously walking around. I don't like anxiety. We preached on that before. I'm not trying to... It's just, it's just reality. It's just reality. 
In fact, in the funeral that I preached on Friday, uh, I had the privilege of being able to read a letter that the deceased had written to God. She used to write letters to God. And one of the things that she said that I think so, so greatly depicts the sermon today is, I can't imagine what heaven, I'm paraphrasing, heaven must be, I can't imagine what heaven would be like because things are pretty awesome here. So she appreciated and loved the life that God had given her. It's like, wow, if I have this here, wow, I can't imagine what it would be without the curse. But I want to look to you if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and remind you today that there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And to remind you that the only way, the only way to gain heaven and shun hell is to believe that Jesus Christ bore on the cross the wrath that is coming to you. The wrath of God that is going to be poured out on you because of your sinful nature. God will pour out his wrath. He either poured it out on his son on your behalf or will pour it out on you. What about you? Today, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be saved. And today is the day of salvation because you have breath in your lungs. You might be able to do it tomorrow. I don't know if you will. I know you can do it today. Come to Christ. Believe on Jesus. Tell him you believe he is who he says he is and that he did what he said he did. And watch what he does in your life. Watch the peace that he can give you. Your life circumstances will not all change. You will not have an easy life for the rest of your life. Some things might even get harder. I promise you it will be worth it. I promised you that if the deceased in the funeral that I preached on Friday or the funeral that I'm going to preach today could come back, they would tell you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it.